tremendous response to our request for questions. <laughs> tremendous in many different ways. One, there was a lot of questions. We will not get to them all during the remainder of this retreat. Nevertheless, we're going to try our best to uh, group, group them into themes or topics and offer a comment that answers 80% uh, of that topic, hopefully, uh, <laughs> if we're lucky. Uh, some of them were really entertaining, <laughs> and we quite thoroughly appreciate your, your entertaining of us. Some of them we will not be reading. <laughs> and others of them ranged from the very, um, very practical uh, retreat uh, advice as well as uh, practical household uh, dharma or a dharma lifestyle advice as well as things we have no idea how to answer. <laughs> so... Um, maybe we should start with the first question. <clears throat> uh, someone asked Franz, where did you ever get that colorful jacket? <laughs> Do you have an answer for this <laughs> sincere Dharma inquiry? <laughs> this jacket is from the Northern Hill Tribes in Thailand. We allow uh, Burma and Thailand come together. Known as a golden triangle, where and they have... And it's handmade. And I saw it in a... In a <laughs> I saw it in a, in a very uh, expensive store in Palm Springs for $400. <laughs> no, no, I, I bought it up there in Thailand, of course. But anyway, it just says about the value of the jacket, and maybe eventually it might go up from some, for some auction, uh, auction for some <laughs> beneficial whatever. Because <laughs> the times are all over. So, so now, having that uh, <clears throat> Dharma introduction, maybe we'll move on to the second question, also for Franz. <laughs> <laughs> we'll end the, end the evening with that one. So, Carol, do you have... You see, I mean, whoever said the Dharma couldn't be fun? Who said that was the Dharma? I didn't say it was Dharma. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't know for me about 80%. I think it's more the way Joseph described how Manindra, his teacher, talked to him about when you're doing Q questions and answers. He said, the people ask the question, and then you talk about whatever you want to. <laughs> So that may be, from, from my side, that might be what's happening. Okay, where did I put it? Uh, oh. oh, well, the first, there were kind of two about the, um, the guided meditation this morning, so pretty basic, we thought we should just start with that. Um, the first one said in, in the guided, they had a kind of out-of-body experience, very positive, pleasant, mind-expanding, is this delusion? And the other, I read them both, and you know, kind of not exactly the same, but then I'll just talk. It's a, the second one in the big mind sitting. Sensations in the body arise, you know, pulsing, lightness, sensations, and uh, unpleasantness was noted, more curiosity arose, relaxation, these sensations passed. And my question is, 
Uh, hearing the prompts from Carol contributed to the events that led to the sensations, so kind of it seemed to deepen or something. So when sitting without the prompts, is it wise to set intentions such as, may my mind be as wide as space, and when is this not skillful? So um, the first to say the person describing the out-of-body experience, that's, it's just what it is. If there's awareness of just how you're experiencing it, that's not delusion. Where delusion could come in, and this I can't tell from the question, but you know you can see it for yourself, is when what we're calling out of body, that could just be a way of describing it, that there's no sense of solid body. I'm taking it to be that, which I was suggesting just as a, as a mode of perception. I mean, we're just perceiving like that. And there's times perception is, is like that rather than solid body. Where it might become delusion is where uh, the mind then makes up a description, a story about what's happening and believes it, such as, now there is no body, you know, or the consciousness has left the body, I don't know what the heck, you know, but whatever we make up and think that is actually what's happening and now there, there is no body here, whatever, rather than just seeing it as a shift of perception. When we just stay with how we're experiencing without needing to explain it or put it together, that's not necessarily delusion if you're not clinging or averse to it. That could, then there's some. So you see, so that's why I can't really tell this first question, is it delusion? Only if your mind was making up some kind of description of what it all meant, a view, and then holding to that view, which uh, our minds do quite easily and readily. And the second one about whether it can be skillful to bring in a prompt. I know. Is it this? Yeah. All right. Um, Whether it's skillful to bring in a prompt. And this is a good question in general about skillful means in our meditation practice as well as in our life. There can be times, the person's describing this particular experience, should I bring in a prompt like, may my mind be as wide as the sky, to try and re, uh, remind the mind of that particular experience? And with skillful means, what makes it skillful or unskillful is always, what's the motivation for that? So if the particular experience uh, they were describing from the meditation this morning Liking it or disliking it isn't to the point, whether it's skillful. If it felt that that was helpful at that time in terms of um, bringing in, for example, a quality of more receptive awareness, if it seemed to help you be more present with less clinging, then that could be seen as a useful thing. If it was like, well, man, this is far out. Let me try and get back to here. This is much cooler than watching anything else. Okay, may my mind be like space. You know, you can look back and see what's in the motivation. Even if, as an experience in the guided meditation, it does seem very um, wholesome in terms of, it did, did give a, and I'm just making, it could be different for you, did give a stronger sense of the receptive non-interfering, wakeful quality of awareness. Less sense of coagulation, of, of attachment to some idea of mind that really seemed quite useful. And then it goes, we could use a prompt like a reminder, ah, yes, 
May my mind be as wide as the sky, just dropped in, in a very gentle, non-clinging way, and then let go. Drop it in as an inclination, but then just be present with whatever happens. And if we find the prompt is like, starts, even turns into the slightest trying to push experience in that direction, which is just habitual, our mind does that, it's not so skillful anymore, because then we're starting to feed. And you'll feel it. You can, we can get more and more sensitive in our awareness of our, what's going on in our minds, and more and more we start to feel when there's that expectation, that pushing, that subtle dissatisfaction with things as they are. So it's just two things to say about that. Oh, one other thing. Not just about in general. This sense of sometimes when your mind is fairly balanced, not when you're really lost in aversion or confusion or clinging, but you're practicing along, there's some balance. Sometimes the use of a wise, a thought, a question that maybe occurs naturally to drop it in because it, it, it gets your interest going. Not like you sit and go through a catalog, I, oh, what about impermanence? Can I really see impermanence now? But it's, it's kind of an artificially brought up, not that. But there's times when you're just out, you know, you're out walking and somehow the sense of this is really pleasant and this is unpleasant just starts coming up to you and you just get interested in how does the mind react to pleasant and unpleasant. For, I'm just making that up. It could be anything. You could just drop that in as one question and it just can serve to, to heighten your interest, to kind of bring a spark of uh, intelligent investigation. But this is only useful when we're not really caught in confusion. Because otherwise it comes to be, why do I look at pleasant and unpleasant? You know, it's like just spinning. So, wise use of thought. Okay. Pick one. There's a range of questions that, that were kind of of the same topic, so I'm going to read a couple of them just to give you a flavor. I find the more I practice awareness, the more I'm aware of fear that seem not to be such a big deal. But now they seem more serious than I thought, and I find myself more aware of being entangled more often than I ever felt. Is this normal? I frequently note a quality of harshness to the observing when doing mindfulness practice. Is there or are there suggestions or recommendations for cultivating some gentleness and acceptance? Is it right awareness when you're able to say, such as, fear is being known and still feel the symptoms of fear, the shakiness, the tightness, etc.? feeling spaciousness around it. Is that okay? Could you talk about more could you talk more about working with the internal chatter in our heads? I am first aware and then I try not to get lost in the story and then I watch the tone and what else? 
There are so many varieties of feelings, defilements to recognize. Each one feels slightly different, but so many of them that it sometimes gets hard to feel exactly what sadness versus loneliness is, for example, or planning versus impatience. Any suggestions? Is it okay on retreat to give oneself permission to think? (laughs) If I'm enjoying this retreat, does it mean I'm not getting it? (laughs) I'm not working hard enough? (laughs) I'll have a thought, and the thought immediately triggers a conditioned response. I'm aware of both, but it is so quick. Where do I shine the light of awareness? What's the common theme of that? (laughs) What all the questions are asking about is something that the person was aware of and then had questions about it. I had this fear. I noted it. It seemed to get worse. Now what? Is this right? Is this normal? These kind of questions are really asking, how do I understand what I am aware of? Whether it's fear or the seeming increase in the amount of things or when you start paying attention, it's like like me. I used to have one emotion, moody. Now I got three (laughs) Or, or 30. And it's just like, what's going on here? It's true, when we, when we, or as we develop awareness, we do, first, we open the mind. And it's a gradual process. And gradually we open to more of our experience. More of our physical experience, more of our emotional experience, more of our, more awareness of the, the kind of the cognitive processes that construct our uh, personality and you know the whole the whole range of things so sometimes what we notice is more of the defilements more of the unpleasantness even and it's not wrong or bad but we should understand it correctly or we can think it's not working you know, in the beginning of a retreat or beginning of practice, you sit down and, you know, your mind wanders three times during the sitting, but it's for 15 minutes each. And you get up at the other sitting and say, hey, that was great. My mind only wandered three times. <laughs> pretty good. And, then, you know, later in the retreat, you sit down and your mind wanders 45 times in a 45-minute sitting. And you think, holy crap, you know, I'm really doing bad but it only wandered for one minute each time. Actually, the one minute want, 45 one-minute wanders is much better than three 15-minute wanders. So it's easy to wrongly interpret, wrongly understand, or misunderstand what it is that's, that's happening in the course of, of practice. And so we want to be careful when we start commenting on, questioning, speculating about what we have become aware of. And instead of getting involved in the content of our questions, the content of our speculation, uh, 
recognize, oh, this too is wondering, speculating, trying to figure out, commenting. And most of them are some form of doubt. And this is the tricky piece about the hindrance or the defilement doubt. It seems so useful. It seems so necessary. It seems so logical. It's so rational. And yet, to the extent that we entertain the thought, am I doing this right? Is this normal? Should this be happening this way? It really is a manifestation of doubt, and we're caught in it. It isn't until we're able to see, oh, this kind of considering, wondering, trying to figure out is really a manifestation of the hindrance doubt. When doubt arises in the mind and it's unseen, it paralyzes our practice. We don't go any further. We just start thinking about the doubting, that that which we doubt. We don't know, we speculate, we're confused. Now, I could go through and answer the questions, the content of the questions, but I wanted to point to the process of the questions as the form of practice or as an important piece of learning how to de- recognize and, and deal with the, uh, with the hindrances. Enjoying the retreat. If you're enjoying the retreat and not noting it, not recognizing it, not being aware of it, but just indulging in the enjoyment, not working hard enough. If you're enjoying it and you're aware that you're enjoying it and you recognize, oh, the enjoyment is here, the enjoyment's not here, then that's good. Thinking on retreat. We know there's a lot of thinking that just leads to more defilements and misery and confusion and proliferation of you know, possible futures and ruminating over the past. And that kind of thinking is, is just fueled by defilements and it produces more defilements. Not useful to think about, not even to give yourself permission to. But again, we often are misled by doubt, again, thinking that, oh, now that my mind is clear, now that I'm, I'm really seeing things clearly, I should think about this problem I have with so-and-so or some part of yourself or some relationship, and now I'll be able to solve it. Not so, not so skillful. On the other hand, we think about how to practice all the time. We're constantly monitoring our practice. Any one of us, when asked, how's it going today, or how's it going in this sitting, could say, oh, it's going very well, it's not going so good, I'm really feeling confident, I'm not. And so we're already thinking about practice. So practice, uh, questioning, or thinking, or reflecting on one's practice, or remembering and recalling the instructions, and reflecting on them in, in how to apply them, this kind of thinking is useful, because it supports Dharma practice rather than takes you away from Dharma practice.
initially when we open to new phenomena in practice, whether it's new sensations in the body, new uh, states of mind, or new psychophysical knots, or new understandings of um, our experience. Uh, Initially, we can get quite um, maybe bewildered by it and just feel a little unsure about it. It's like, is this, uh, what is this? Is this okay? Is this, you know? Gradually, with more exposure to it, we, we become more familiar with it and we have an understanding about it. It is common, it's, it's normal to think about that experience. You can't stop yourself from thinking about it, but it's not necessary to proliferate thinking about it. It'll happen automatically. You get an insight and, or you see, oh, that's the way it is. That's why I am the way I am, or that's how it works, or even that's how practice works, or you, you take note of how your good practice comes about. And then you start thinking about it. The mind is going to reflect on all of that. So we don't want to think that that kind of thinking is bad or wrong. It happens. If it's noticed and you're aware of it, fine. If you proliferate it or if you allow it to proliferate, then your practice is on hold until you put it aside or until you see it uh, with awareness and are not just indulging in it. A couple of questions about um, compassion and loving kindness. What's the difference between compassion and loving kindness, metta in the Pali? Does practicing loving kindness help one gain enough distance from anger to observe it rather than caught in it as a defilement? What's the role or practice of metta karuna in this way of practice? What does Utejaniya say about it? So uh, many of well, just to say met what, what we mean by compassion and loving kindness in the very basic way, uh, they're both uh, mental factors, qualities of mind that can manifest as thought, as mood, and um, very specific, and they are experienced as subtly different qualities uh, of heart and mind, both beautiful, wholesome qualities. So metta... They're both aspects of what's called non-hatred. The opposite of dosa, or hatred, is a dosa, non-hatred, and metta and karuna, compassion, are aspects of that. So metta is a quality of open, connected, you could say friendliness, acceptance, kindness. I'm not talking about it as a formal practice, but just the state of mind, the mental factor of heart, of uh, acceptance, connectedness, openness. It manifests as wishing well, as seeing, it it's, uh, comes about, its proximate cause is seeing the good in someone or in oneself. And it's one of the four Brahma-viharas or sublime abodes. It's four qualities or factors of heart and mind that, can, that arise and can be cultivated. Anything can be cultivated. Also, hatred can be cultivated. 
but can, that can be cultivated to a, uh, it seems like a boundless extent in terms of concentration. And because metta is, the, the state of metta, which is one of open, wholehearted acceptance connected, in the moment of pure metta, the sense of me and other breaks down. It's just a, a pure mental state. And so it moves in the direction of this may all beings be happy. I'm sure you've heard that, even if you're not familiar with metta, the sense of this well-wishing to all beings without exclusion, not just the ones I like, not just the ones doing good. And it's not about the beings, it's about this openness of heart. And karuna, compassion, is the same open quality that includes all beings. You could say, the way we describe it in a practical sense, is this quality of metta, this friendliness that you know, looks at someone, may be happy. And it's tuned to the suffering aspect of a being. So when there's this open heart connected to a being, you see or feel their suffering, a kind of empathy. But it's not the empathy of, of grief or aversion or overwhelm. Compassion is sometimes described as the quivering of the heart when it's touched or connected with suffering. So compassion manifests as the wish to relieve a being or oneself of suffering, but not that, let me fix it because it's so unpleasant to be with. It's just, it's just that, that vibrating together, that touchness of the heart. And it also becomes, can become boundless. In the Tibetan tradition, the whole um, cultivation as a, of bodhicitta as uh, the deepest motivation for one's practice, the wish to um, be able to save all beings from the sufferings of samsara, the sufferings of delusion, and that one's practice becomes dedicated to saving all beings is like a manifestation of the vastest possible imagining of compassion. But it doesn't have to be vast, and these, as, these are normal mental factors, right? We all experience true compassion and true loving kindness in our daily lives. It's not something that only comes about through practice. So that's what they are and how they're, they're subtly different. And just so you know, the other two boundless states, metta, uh, loving kindness or friendliness, compassion, the third one is appreciative joy, which is just as compassion is this open-hearted connectedness tuned into the suffering of a being or all beings and empathizing. Appreciative joy is the same open, complete connection with the happiness, with the success of a being of anybody and um, rejoicing in the happiness and success of another. Doesn't that sound like a nice thing? We could, you know, a different way to be in the world, isn't it? I don't know, it may not be the most natural, but if you know, it's Mudita's the name. If you know anybody who really has a natural affinity for Mudita, you know, we all have somebody who, when something's going well for you, they're, they're just so happy for you. Do you know anyone like that? There are people like that. Aren't they nice to be around? <laughs> I mean, they may have other stuff, but, but it's just really, wow, I'm so happy for you, you know? It's, it's a, a joint happiness. So the Dalai Lama had this great line about appreciative joy that it's so much better because it increases our chances for happiness for six billion to one. (laughs) We just don't have to wait for our happiness to be happy. I love mudita. I mean, it's really a great thing. And then the the fourth one is equanimity. 
Equanimity is this exquisite balance of mind that sees all aspects and, and can be present with the suffering, present with the joy, able to help when there's help, but when there's not a way to help, not also getting lost in either blame or fear or taking responsibility. It's a sense of, it's a real, the real wisdom aspect of seeing everything arises due to causes and conditions, and I can't change or control your causes and conditions. I may want you to be happy, but it's not really up to me. But it's not dismissive the way that sounds. It's very um, connected and wise. So those are the four Brahma-viharas. Practicing uh, loving-kindness, they can be practiced, as as many of you know, many of you have done, some of you who haven't done retreats before, I'll just very briefly say, as we've said, there's many different techniques of mindfulness, Vipassana practice, and there's also different techniques of um, cultivating loving-kindness as a mental state or compassion as a mental state or the other two as well. And in, in our way of practice that we know, it's also combined with a, with a concentration, a one-pointedness practice, so that one can practice cultivating metta, for example, and also developing this collectedness, this one-pointedness of mind. It's, it's a whole technique. I don't want to go into it. So that's a way of practice. Um, obviously, we're not doing that here because it's a, a different practice. And we really, uh, as you will have noticed, we're really choosing not to emphasize specific technique here because we're really trying to get across the idea that when we get for ourselves, when we understand the power of wise attitude in the mind, the power of awareness from wise attitude, once we really get a, a feeling, a felt sense of trust in that and can recognize what's going on in our mind to some extent, then we can use that with any technique with any technique. Without it, without understanding wise attitude and the awareness of it, we can practice even metta or anything very sincerely, but with so much craving, you know, let me be with a breath, let me be with metta. I practice metta once, and you say these phrases over and over, and I was like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And one day I just had the image that I was like, had this machine gun spitting out the phrases at the person, I thought, hmm, something isn't right about this. Subtle, but I noticed it. <laughs> so anyway, that's why we're not doing it here. But on many, we teach it in other retreats. And many people have incorporated loving-kindness practice or compassion practice, either done spells of it and then Vipassana at other times, or many people and many here have incorporated it in their regular Vipassana practice. Or sometimes, and this is probably where this question comes from, people may use it, and we may suggest it, although we haven't so much on this retreat, but may suggest it at times when there's just so much, either so much going on that emotionally it's just really difficult. When we say switch to something more neutral, often the metta, if it's something that someone already knows, can work in that way. So metta, anyway, as a practice, It is deliberately directing, inclining the mind towards this quality of mind of kindness, of friendliness, of open-hearted acceptance, starting with oneself. So often it's very helpful when there's a lot of self-aversion and judgment going on in every, you know, every moment, just to switch to, may I be safe? May I be happy? Sometimes, anyway, so that's how that works. So it is cultivating, actually, 
a different, a wholesome, a beautiful quality of mind. It's the opposite of ill will. The metta kind of um, begins to purify the habit of mind of ill will. When there's metta in the mind, there is an ill will. They don't coexist. So for many people of the so-called aversive temperament, or who tend to, I mean, we all have all of it, but who tend to have a lot of aversion, sometimes periods of practicing metta, it's just a way to say, oh yeah, there's, there's another way. <laughs> the mind can actually relate to experience in another way. It doesn't, it doesn't end ill will at all, but it's just to begin to change the channel to shift the habit, that so we begin to see that um, it actually highlights as well how ill will and anger arise in the mind, how they function, how we get caught in them. So there's different ways that practicing loving kindness can help. It's not that it necessarily gives you distance from anger. When anger is there, there's anger. You know? And if you call up loving kindness, sometimes you can't do it because the anger is strong. But knowing that quality of loving-kindness can come into awareness. So say there's anger, but we've been practicing loving-kindness as called, oh, this is painful. May I be free from suffering? Oh, anger's like this. So you can bring that quality of kindness into the awareness that's meeting the anger. And so it does give a softening, a subtle, actually, acceptance of the anger rather than hating ourselves for being anger, angry which is just more anger, or denying it altogether and saying, I'm not angry, that person's just a jerk. You know, anyone would be. So it can really begin to soften the edges, to show a whole other way of relating, to bring a kindness into the awareness when, it, when we don't realize that we're being aware with this really harsh edge, like one of the questions Steve read. Metta can really soften that. And sometimes we can deliberately practice it, let it go, come back. And as I said, all these mental factors, they have inertia. Just like anger, you, you keep feeding it, you keep noticing it, we get more and more angry. Well, with loving kindness, just as with awareness, as one moment of mindfulness makes the next more likely, one moment of loving kindness makes the next more likely. And as you get more familiar, you can sometimes actually, I do this in my daily life sometimes, my mind just goes, nah, 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 nothing big, but just that aversive mind, just a habit that the mind sees what's wrong first. The greedy kind sees what's right first and wants it. Versus, no, nah, that's wrong, let's fix it. You know? So I can just say, you know, let's just change the channel to metta. As we get more connected with our minds, we can actually see that they're much more malleable, much more flexible. Utejaniya, again, doesn't, um, he's not so into teaching techniques. So again, he doesn't uh, really teach metta or compassion. Of course, as he says, and this is true in all practice, they are normal natural, and they deepen and arise spontaneously through the awareness practice because with wisdom, they're natural manifestations of wisdom in the mind. But he doesn't particularly teach them. Sometimes there is the arising of such a strong state of depression that the body cannot get out of bed. How would you work skillfully with such a strong negative feeling? The suggestions are develop metta towards oneself and others. B, be aware of the depression and observe it carefully. C, develop self-compassion. 
D, see a psychologist. E, all of the above. F, others, means. And then a corollary of it. Would you address the subject of antidepressant medication? And I want to take the opportunity to, that these two questions offer to, to just speak about the conditions in our contemporary uh, society. We live at a, at a time when uh, there's tremendous social uh, and uh, economic and interpersonal stress uh, and, and just work stress on all of us. And luckily, or let's say, <clears throat> fortunately in some ways, there's also a proliferating big farm uh, industry that's producing all kinds of uh, medications to treat all of these, frankly, ordinary human conditions. Okay, there are many of us here in the room that are on some sort of prescribed medication, whether it's antidepressant, anti-anxiety, something for uh, obsessive compulsive uh, habits, and and many other kinds of uh, medications. If it has been prescribed for you by a competent doctor with uh, some sort of uh, uh, accurate evaluation, then we take it, we use it. I don't know of any of those drugs that prevent you from being aware of the mind. You still have a mind. And you can still notice what is going on in your experience and what is going on in your mind. There are some symptoms of you know sleepiness, dullness, whatever. And so we have to learn to deal with our defiled reactions to them and not liking them. But it doesn't wipe out your mind. And so there's no reason not to take any of the medications if there's a genuine and diagnosed need for them. And there's no reason to give up your mindfulness practice or awareness practice or dharma practices if or just because you're taking any form of medication. That being said, how do you work with you know, uh, severe or dramatic states of mind for which you sometimes take or others sometimes take medication? Just as you do every other experience. You observe it. You notice your relationship to it. You notice the quality of mind in relationship to it. You watch the energy of staying engaged with it, staying right there to meet it, not trying to overcome it, not trying to kind of push it away, not trying to kind of fix it, but not having any agenda other than to observe the nature of a depressed state of mind or to observe the nature of anxiety, to observe the nature of panicking. And it's amazing, it sounds kind of counterintuitive or maybe kind of paradoxical, but you can. You can even take awareness into sleepiness, which seems kind of oxymoronic, but you can. And so it takes some understanding that it's possible and some willingness to, to engage in that way. And you have to let go of your expectations of, 
what you think should be happening or what you think good uh, awareness practice is and just acknowledge what your direct and immediate experience is. I am of the chemical soup theory of um, mind, uh, mind balance, if you will. And uh, we who've taught at the three-month retreat for many years have a, a kind of a psychiatric consultant who is an exceptional yogi and knowledgeable on all the, the current medications. So he always looks over our yogi questionnaires to just help us decipher what people are taking, what kind of chemicals they need in their mental soup in order to kind of function normally in the world. And there's all kinds. I mean, there's just an unbelievable amount of stuff that people are taking and doing three-month retreats. So, <clears throat> but it's always good to know what they are. If you're born with, or if as you grow, you end up with a deficiency of some element in the soup, what's wrong with adding it medicatively? Nothing. That being said, Saito Tejaniya suffers from, or has in the past suffered from, severe depression as a layman, when he was a layman. <clears throat> and so he said the first time that he got a bout of severe depression, he just muscled his way through it. He just refused to deal with it and just insisted on not being overtaken or not succumbing and through persistence survived or escaped or overcame it. The second time that he had it, it was a little more difficult and also was able to kind of muscle his way through it. But the third time, it was a severe depression, and like this question, you know, just can't get out of bed. And he said there was no energy to do it. He just had, he, he knew practice, and he'd been practicing for a long time, and so he said he just had to pay attention to it. And he got so interested in trying to understand the nature of depressed mind. And he said an interesting thing. He said, when people are depressed, they know their thoughts. They know that, that just proliferation of very depressing thoughts. What they don't understand, or what they don't know, or aren't able to recognize, they aren't able to let go of the identification with them. And that is, as I mentioned in one of the talks during this retreat, it is an essential understanding to bring to practice that, you know, your thoughts are not yours. They come due to causes and conditions that are not under your immediate control. And when you really know this, and then you watch, and you observe the thoughts going through your mind, it's not so personal. They're still there. They're very, you know, condemning and heavy uh, thoughts, but you really see them through the lens of how impersonal they are. And he said, it's fascinating. It's just absolutely fascinating to watch what happens in a depressed state of mind and to be aware of it. It doesn't go away. Just because you're aware of it doesn't mean it goes away, but you understand it. And when you understand it, 
you don't get identified with it. So when it comes, you see it, and you're not identified with, I'm so depressed, and it doesn't control your behavior subsequently. Well, since his success with understanding and thereby in some ways not suffering with depression, uh, he has ordained and he now teaches all the time, and uh, it, it hasn't had a recurrence. So I think it's an important testimonial from someone who has successfully weathered severe depression with awareness and growing understanding and no longer uh, or has not had a relapse since then. So I, I offer that as a, as a template for those of you who either do suffer severe depression, are on medications, or fear uh, severe depression. Yeah. Or any of the other uh, severe, severely unpleasant mental states, conditions for which you are taking medication. I believe, not having experienced it personally, but I believe they're all workable. But I would be cautious about thinking I can do it with awareness alone. Quarter after. You have any more? Let me see. Let me see. I see a motion come up. Label it. Blah 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 blah. I also like tennis. A whole bunch of questions about not self, which I'd like to talk about, but I think maybe save it for tomorrow in some way because it's not something you can kind of cramp up in five minutes. Um, but there's a, here's a couple of questions that um, they seem different, but I can make want to make a point from both of them. Um, kind of two points. One is about how does one prevent arrogance and indifference uh, after a meditative insight? And then this person said they had a exper- bad experiences with, uh, with people, other people who meditate. One who would say he, quote, has sympathy for me and others who don't understand what he does. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, loving kindness, compassion. <laughs> That's how it manifests. And... Uh, one co-worker stopped caring about work since nothing is permanent. Um, I guess in the laughing you can see that's, that's not really the wisdom of meditative insight. And I'll read the other one because the other one's different, but there's a point I want to make about both before saying the specifics. This is different. I'm confused. If mindfulness means being in the present moment, why do I feel such an oppressive energy uh, from so many people today on the retreat? For example, at lunch, shouldn't we be in the moment and be grateful for the beautiful, delicious food we are eating and not caught up in depressive thoughts. So the first thing I want to say is about when we're... I mean, the first one about other people. I mean, the first one is saying on how other people acted, so that's like a little more information. 
But the tendency we have, like when I came in and you showed me the note and I just assumed what she was meaning with the note and I completely made up. She meant something completely different. And that's what we do. We see other people, especially in the silence, and we, we, uh, the mind projects. It's perception. Perception is seeing and the, the recognition quality. Steve mentioned it last night. It's happening in every moment. So there's the seeing, and like I see a form, my mind says person, I may say the person's name, and this all happens really quick. And if you know you're at work, or the person says something, and they have a look on your face, it's so easy, the perception is they're depressed, they're angry, they think they're so, you know, whatever it is. And we don't even recognize that's happening, we just think, oh yeah, they're, they're angry, and the whole mind then starts on a whole reaction thing. So part of what's interesting on retreat is to really watch. All that we are knowing really is perception and thoughts. And on retreat in particular, it happens a lot where people are so sure what's going on with other people and they find out at the end, no clue. No clue in life. We really don't know. And even if we do know, what's the difference? It's what's going on here. So part of it is just seeing this is not just about people and what we think they're thinking. This is on a, on a deeper level of misperception. Maybe when, whenever we get into talking about not-self, this is actually the same um, tendency of mind to perceive the perception is inaccurate, and that's one of the functions of delusion, that we don't, and we don't see it, because we, just, we don't even question our perception. That's how it is. That person's angry at me. What did I do? And we're off, you know. Not self works in the same way. Our perception is inaccurate of what we're calling sense of self. We don't even recognize the perception, never mind. So that's the whole insight. So that just I just want to point out that's a fascinating thing to watch. And retreat's a good way. Little things, like I used to have the idea, I could be sitting in the dining room, you know how you're not looking, and a long retreat, someone comes and sits next to you, and maybe it hasn't been long enough yet. But on a longer retreat, you kind of get the feel for everyone. You can just feel their energy, you know their shoes, you know kind of how they move. You, maybe you don't know their name or anything else. You already you like them, you don't like them, you've got all these ideas about them, you don't even know. And this, this really goes on, you know, in six-week, three-month retreats. So I've loved to see when that happens, someone sits next to me that I don't have a, you know, a good story I made up about. They bug me, and I don't look because I don't want to feed that. And I'm going through the whole thing. I'm cultivating compassion. I'm cultivating... And then I see, really see accurately, the person I think sitting here walking across the far end of the room. And I realize, oh, I really am seeing... And it's like, ah, I was making up this whole story. Misperception. So it's fun to play with that. Don't blame yourself. Just seeing how the mind works. That's awareness. So in both of these, um, the one about in the dining room, First of all, we don't know what's going on with other people. Second of all, being in the moment, awareness means aware of what's happening. What's happening isn't always lovely gratitude for the food, as we've been talking. Sometimes being in the moment means depressive, scary thoughts are coming up, boredom's coming up, gratitude's coming up, just being with sounds is coming up. Whatever is arising, being in the moment means being with that. It doesn't mean we're always tuned in to appreciation and gratitude. Now, luckily, the steadiness of awareness that allows for wisdom does then, when there's wisdom, there is more space 
for the kalesas aren't there, the defilement, and there is space for gratitude, appreciation, really being so present with the food, with other people. And so appreciation and beauty and compassion and metta are much more likely to arise. That's true. But a lot of being aware in the moment, as you know, means being just as present and just as kind when what's happening is depressive thoughts about, I wish I liked miso soup. It would be good for me if I liked miso soup. Let me pretend that I love miso soup. Okay, okay, this is what's happening right now. And so similar about the preventing arrogance and indifference. In other people, of course, I'm not sure from this question, of course we can't prevent anything in anybody else, and that's outside of our scope of being able to do anything. In ourselves, and any question I find, uh, so I don't know the person who wrote this, I'm not saying this is from them, but I find whenever I'm concerned or worried about someone else's behavior and what can I do, it's, it's because, you know, I don't like it here. So noticing if there's a, I mean, you all laughed when I said that about, about having insights and then, you know, oh, I have sympathy for you poor schmooze who don't understand, you know, the, the nature of reality and I'm going to stop um, caring about work because nothing's permanent. Those are both, yeah, it does sound arrogant, it sounds deluded, and it's, it's not, that is not the effect of liberating insight. I mean, if that's what we're practicing for, I'm sorry, I, I wouldn't be here. Um, but insights come in little blips, and we have a moment where we really see something clearly. Oh, everything is impermanent. And then that we're back to seeing in the old way, and there might be a memory of everything's impermanent, but that memory or how we respond now is filtered through what's happening in the mind now. And so we have an insight into, say, impermanence. Then it's gone, and we go back to work. I'm making this up, and, and that's not there. Oh, everything's impermanent. It doesn't matter. How the heck with it. I don't have to do a good job. It's impermanent. What's happening now? And insight doesn't mean now I don't have to watch the mind anymore. No. The insight's more of an inspiration. Oh, right. Nothing's permanent. So what's going on now? And it can be easy to kind of think we're living, kind of like... Uh, living on the coattails of an insight that isn't arising in the moment. It's a memory. Now, a memory of an insight can be useful. All right, everything's impermanent. If we use it to turn our attention back to what's happening now, if we use it to deepen our interest and our understanding, but if we just take it as a memory and then it's just feeding our habits of defilement, you know, of arrogance or of not caring, because we stop seeing what's happening now. You see what I mean? So, so that's the way to not get arrogant. Just keep noticing what's happening in the mind and heart right now. That's all. What we're doing here, that's what we'll do in our life. There was a whole bunch of questions as well about uh, daily life, working with this type of awareness in daily life, which we'll talk about you know, towards the end of the retreat. So I just thought about those two. You just have one other. Yeah. I got, I got many others. Yeah, many others. <clears throat> Are there any good books or readings on romantic love and the concept of no self? <laughs> no. <laughs> How do I address the sense of me when falling in love? 
You can't because you're addressing the sense of you or the other. (laughs) Falling in love is no different than any other activity of mind. Pay attention to what's going on. I will say, though, that when we fall in love, we are heavily deluded. (laughs) Yeah, we have a lot of attachment. We have a lot of, you know, desire. And as I mentioned in the talk on the defilements, when the mind is filled with desire, it causes you to see only the pleasant aspect of what it is you're observing or looking at. And so the person that you fall in love with looks, feels, sounds, smells, tastes, great for a while, (laughs) as long as that desire's in the mind. And like everything else, desire is also conditioned and it's impermanent. And when that desire softens or wanes or falls away, and you look at that same person doing that same behavior, wearing those same clothes, in that same activity, somehow they look very different. The point of it all is, when one is caught in desire, we mostly focus on the object of our desire, the person, the cake, the cookie, the car, the career, whatever it is, When we look at and focus on the object of our desire, it is always pleasant. The trick with awareness practice is to turn around and look at the feeling of desire. We're out there looking at the object of our desire. Turn around and actually learn about the nature of desire, the feeling of desire in the mind, the feeling of desire or the feeling that's in the body that the desire conditions. And watch what your mind does. When you're imagining acquiring, possessing, owning, becoming something that you desire, the future always looks great. It does. That's the nature of desire. When you turn to observe and to learn about the nature of desire, you find this out about yourself. It doesn't make the other person less attractive. It just makes you more sober. (laughs) And that's okay in the second month of the relationship. (laughs) In the first month, you want a lot. (laughs) But still, I mean, just seriously, just to, you know, when, think about it. When else should you have more awareness and more understanding than when you fall in love and possibly meet and greet the person that you think you want to spend some substantial part of your life with? We would hope that you'd have as much awareness doing that as you would picking a car or a career or a house or anything else. So as we have mentioned many times in the retreat, there's nothing in your experience that should be considered outside the fair bounds of your awareness practice. Everything should be brought into it. Falling in love, as well as being depressed, as well as career choice and everything else in our life. Because awareness brings knowledge. Knowledge and awareness brings wisdom. 
wisdom is the ability to anticipate consequences and therefore suffer less. Again, thank you very much for your questions. I know some of you will be maybe disappointed that uh, we didn't get to answer yours, but we may use them as a, a springboard for what we'll speak about in the remainder of the retreat. So they're not lost yet. Um, Oh, the last one for France, turn off the tape. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.